This is a podcast from Art and Reality, the role of visual culture in the post-independent state. This University College Dublin Symposium examined the role of visual culture in constructing and critiquing the Irish Free State and national identity in the aftermath of political independence. The symposium took place in the UCD Humanities Institute on the 19th of October 2018 and was a joint initiative between the UCD School of Art, History and Cultural Policy and NIVAL, the National Irish Visual Arts Library. The symposium was funded by UCD Decade of Centenaries. All ten papers at the symposium were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media and are now available online. In this podcast, Sean Keating and the Art of Nation Building, a paper by Emer O'Connor. Good morning, everybody. It's very nice to be here, and thank you very much, Roisin, for organising this event. This is an image of Sean Keating from the Keating private collection of papers. I'm sure you've never seen him looking like this, but I know him from his ears. <laughs> Sean Keating was very well aware that he was living in an era of transformation, and from an early stage in his career, he resolved to paint emerging history or to document the creation of a new Irish nation. He enthusiastically immersed himself in the post-colonial project to bring the pre-revolutionary imagined nation into being, and along with that, a new school of Irish art, one that would demonstrate the social and political reality of post-independent Ireland both at home and abroad. His concept of a school of art was not necessarily dependent on the Dublin Metropolitan School, However, once appointed to his part-time role there in 1919, he continually fought for funding, facilities and university status. Yet, outside the physical building of the school and inspired by the role given to artists in, in the arts in America and Russia, Keating believed in an environment that encouraged artists to properly finance provision of official patronage which would allow good art to emerge. The moment the artist exhibited Men of the West in 1917, which features a self-portrait and a double portrait of his brother, Joe Hannon Keating, both in Aran clothing, with the Irish tricolour and guns by their sides, the Aran Islands became Keating's visual metaphor for his artistic identity, his political persuasion and his vision of an Irish school of art. He followed Men of the West with a few politicised paintings, the most famous being Men of the South, a portrayal of Sean Moylan's Cork-based flying column sent to Dublin as a result of an agreement made between Keating and Moylan, an agreement to paint men who were wanted by the British authorities and to risk arrest by being in Dublin at all. Thus, Keating began his project to paint emerging history in a most auspicious way. Indeed, immediately recognised as an important visual document of the era for its depiction of an actual flying column, he received £200 for Men of the South from the Gibson Bequest Committee, who purchased it for the Crawford Art Gallery in Cork in 1925. While his portrayal of self and others is heroic, it is worthwhile to consider that he was also well able to portray the alienating and fearful side of warfare depicted in Aragomad, and on the run, War of Independence. The extent of his political paintings made between 1917 and 1924 was actually quite limited, along with the aforementioned where a portrait of Sean Moylan, an IRA column, which is now in Orson Ugdron, and the ambush, along with some sketches and watercolours. If paintings such as Men of the West and Men of the South are viewed as confident, separatist, nationalist visual statements, Keating's loss of belief in violence is unmistakable in an allegory first exhibited in the RHA in 1925 and then in the Carnegie Institute in Pittsburgh that same year. 
1924, Keating published his first article, and it was entitled The Slave Mind of Ireland, in which he took the opportunity to berate post-treaty Ireland as, and I quote, a nation of self-excusers, who blamed everyone and everything, including the English and the climate, for, and I quote, the rotten state of things. This was, as far as Keating was concerned, the slave mentality of, which the Irish, for, of the Irish for which the antidote suggested was that we ought look at ourselves even if the sight made us sick. Ultimately, he felt that unless we take off our coats and dirty our hands, we, the Irish, are doomed and damned to the bottomless pit of futility and we shall have nobody to blame but ourselves. Very positive. The article, though, can be read as a literary articulation of Keating's visual intent in an allegory, while it also suggests the manner in which he intended to continue to engage with cultural debates throughout his career. And he certainly had opinions on the School of Art. In 1925, Keating wrote a report on the school for the Secretary of the Department of Education, the context for which went all the way back to an official inquiry into conditions at the school in 1906, to which Keating's mentor and friend, William Orpin, contributed, and after which absolutely nothing was done. When independent Ireland came into being, Keating felt sure that the Irish government would set about providing better facilities, serious funding and academic recognition. And from that perspective, he wrote, it is clear that the school should either be reorganised as a university for those who intend to make art their profession, or that it, the school, should be abolished. While Keating's report actually caused mayhem and put him in the firing line, pardon me, literally with the then headmaster, George Atkinson, nothing was done to improve the, the school until the French report in the 1930s, to which both Keating and Atkinson contributed, which ultimately led to the school being designated the National College of Art, or the NCA, in 1937. So it was, largely as a result of the initial lack of official regard for the School of Art, and later as a result of the overall dreadful economic conditions that prevailed for years, Keating lost hope in the Irish governing classes in post-independent Ireland. Meanwhile, continually interested in painting emerging history, Keating resolved to go to Ardna Crusher to document what was happening on the huge project colloquially known as the Shannon Scheme. This was the first large-scale project of its type in Europe since the First World War, and it was happening near his home turf of Limerick, a city that he was delighted to leave in 1911 to move to Dublin and to the School of Art there, and a city that he was later to call, and I quote, a medieval dung heap. <laughs> While he was friendly with some of the people involved, including Joe McGrath, for whom he would later do theatrical mural schemes for the Irish Hospital sweepstakes in the 1930s, Keating was not commissioned to go to Shannon. He determined to record the project because the huge-scale engineering works there were a metaphor for his vision of a light-filled and enlightened future for post-independent Ireland, wrought and shaped from the medieval dung heap of the unenlightened colonial past. Most, although not all, of the paintings were likely purchased by Thomas McLaughlin, who became the first director of ESB in 1927. Perhaps the best known of this series of works, which is based on his time at Ardna Crusha, but exhibited two years after he finished working on the site, is Night's Candles Are Burnt Out, which can be viewed as an amplification of his vision for post-independent Ireland, premised on the looking at ourselves as set out in an allegory and the slave mind of Ireland. Night's Candles was first exhibited in the Royal Academy in 1929, where it was quickly given the title of the problem painting of the exhibition. But Keating's own words best describe his intended meaning. The title suggests that the dawn has come when the dim candlelight of surviving medievalism in Ireland is fading before the rising sun of scientific progress, 
exemplified by the Shannon Electricity Works. The Stage Ireland and the Stage Irishman are typified by the skeleton hanging on the left from one of the steel towers. Beneath are the types of Irish workmen. One represents the capitalist who carries under his arms plans for industrial development. A gunman confronts him menacingly. The two symbolise the constant antagonism between the business element and the extremists, which hinders the material progress of the state. The priest reading represents the unchanging church. He went on to say, rather hopefully in my view, that my picture depicts the transition of Ireland from a country of ancient stagnation to a state of freedom and progress. Keating has previously been described as right thinking, largely owing to his lifelong association with academic art, but in terms of politics, he and his wife May, a lifelong political activist, were actually politically to the left. There was a keen interest uh, taken in cultural political developments in Russia by the Keatings and several of their friends in the late 20s to mid-1930s. Along with Hannah Sheehy Skeffington and artist Harry Kurnoff, May was a member of the Friends of Soviet Russia. Keating's concern with developments in Russia is evident in a small frontispiece entitled Thea Thier is Changa, or God, Country and Language, published in 1931, in which he appears, along with his wife May and their son Michael, all models and night's candles in which they point, point towards the future, but in this instance they are now pointing towards a crucifix and a hammer and sickle bathed in the light of a mandorla, as if to propose that their nationalist ideal was a form of Christian socialism. It was hardly surprising that the illustration appeared as a frontispiece and was never publicly exhibited. The terror of communism in political circles in Ireland led to an official initiative, initiative instigated in 1931 to withhold passports from those who applied to travel to the USSR, to which the Friends of Soviet Russia responded by holding a huge rally in Middle Abbey Street in May of that year. Keating did not comment publicly on his wife's political activism. Educated in Spain, a country that she loved, May helped to organise an ambulance brigade set up to support the Republican side of the Spanish Civil War. But the post-independent Ireland that emerged was coexistent with that unchanging Catholic Church that condemned the Spanish Republicans. Keating's only comment on the political activities going on in his private life was a visual one, a portrait of Father Michael O'Flanagan, exhibited in the RHA in 1936, the year of the formation of the Connolly Column of Irish men who fought for Spain's Republic, O'Flanagan was a fearless champion of the cause of Republican Spain at the time. His comment on May's major role in the now infamous mother and child scheme in which Noel Brown faced the wrath of the again unchanging church in the guise of John Charles McQuaid was a portrait of Noel Brown exhibited in the RHA in 1952 and various ephemeral posters made for display at pro-mother and child scheme rallies. This one actually features May Keating. A full or constituent member of the RHA since 1923, Keating lent a painting entitled The Hunter to an exhibition staged at the Mansion House in 1931. The exhibition was organised by former IRA member and former art student at the School of Art, Ben O'Hickey, and his group, which was known as the Association of Irish Artists. And it consisted of works that had been rejected for exhibition by the selection committee of the RHA that year. Keating attended the opening of the exhibition and in a broadcast on Ireland's new radio station 2RN in May of 1931, he dealt with the topic thus. Because I happened to be an academician, I was given to understand that I had done something very wrong by attending the opening. He went on to say about the RHA itself, to suggest that an academy is no use for youth or courage or novelty or enterprise or for indignation against injustice, real or imaginary, 
is to suggest that the academy is dead. He continued, you're going to love this. As long as privilege and authority are dear to humans, as long as middle age brings caution and laziness, so long will academicians tend to conservatism, arrogance and the vices of middle age. That is why, in my opinion, every institution ought be abolished after 25 years. So that's a second call for abolition. He went on to say that the rebel artists of today who appear in the streets without a hat or have no property beyond youth and high spirits will in their turn wear top hats and red robes. Their rebellion is a healthy sign. And just speaking of hats... Homo sapiens, an allegory of democracy, was first exhibited in the Royal Academy in London in 1930, just one year after Night's Candles. It's a notable work because it is, as the artist said, a universal depiction of man, singularly unimproved by, in mind or body. When asked about the meaning, Keating said, We live in a world wherein an inherited instinct enables us to classify men according to their hats, the repulsive gas mask, the idiotic tin hat, along with the judicial wig, and the bishop's mitre. And thus, he was already acknowledging by 1930 that the enlightenment he thought might emerge in post-independent Ireland was being stifled by people in authority, recognisable by their various hats. And in the 1930s, he said, and you're going to love this one too, we got rid of one second-rate English gang which had been sent to Ireland because they were not good enough for England, and we replaced them by a gang of national school teachers and Gaelic leaguers. These didn't even have the pretense of being interested in culture, which the English had. We inherited colonial departmentalism, officialdom and bureaucracy from which all evils sprang. The damning comment says much about his attitude to the social and political stagnation in Ireland in the post-independent years. But while not enamoured of the gang that held the reins of power, he did have an egalitarian belief in the ordinary people of Ireland many of whom fought bravely for independence and who are now fighting so bravely for the post-independent state. He began to produce emblematic paintings of everyday people for public exhibition at home and abroad. These I call his worker hero images. And they advertised and characterised his confidence in post-independent Ireland in spite of what he saw as the ultimate failure of the revolution. I'm going to show you two of these. The first is Race of the Gale. First shown in the Munster Arts Club in 1929 before exhibition at the Royal Academy that year and then with the Helen Hackett Gallery in New York in 1930, Race of the Gale features two former members of the IRA, the aforementioned Ben O'Hickey and Brigadier Ben Carty, both of whom repudiated violence in post-independent Ireland. Hickey was by now a professional artist and Ben Carty became a family doctor working in South Dublin. One might assume that the two heroic-looking men were the epitome of what Keating thought to be the race of the Gael, but nothing could have been further from the truth. Writing to Helen Hackett about the painting, he revealed that, and I quote, The meaning to me is that I've made fun of that venerable myth of the pure Irish race by setting two extremely different human types, typically Irish or Western European, and juxtaposing them. Both, however, are Irish that the two men made a useful contribution to post-independent Ireland, having been formerly members of the IRA, adds further subversion to the artist's joke for those in the know about their identity at the time. And in spite of the trouble that he'd been in the previous year during which he called for the RHA to be abolished, lest it stagnate, he actually lent Race of the Gale to Ben O'Hickey's Association of Irish Artists Rebel Exhibition in 1932, and that's Ben O'Hickey circled. See the painting up in the top right. This time painted in 1958 as a gift for Felix Hackett, Professor of Engineering from um, UCD, 
from his students at the time, we might assume at first glance that the key men mentioned in the title of this work were vital to either the Shannon scheme or to the new scheme of Kulafuka, which was painted by Keating in the 30s and early 40s. Yet the elderly man in the foreground was not actually an engineer. Rather, he was a dustman or a good old-fashioned bin man. And at the time, he was also chairman of a Dublin division of the Labour Party known as the George Bernard Shaw branch. Keating got to know Dustman Riley during his tenure on the Board of Trustees of the National Gallery in the 1950s. And that's why there was discussions going on about the placement of a sculpture of Shaw within the gallery. To Keating, Dustman Riley was the ideal model. He was a key man, a bin man contributing to civic life through his daily routine of work and through his left-leaning politics. Keating exhibited two allegorical paintings about, and I quote, the rotten state of things in the RHA in 1949 and 1950. In both images, the artist returned to the Aran Islands, the place of his hope for the future in Men of the West in 1917. But this time, the Aran Islands provided a background for a very different socio-political reality in Ireland. These paintings were allegorical critiques of the failure of successive governments to provide enough work and to stem the flow of emigration. It is the artist with the beard and his wife May, dressed in red, who appear in both. They lost their eldest son to emigration to the USA just a few short years later. As for state funding for artists for which Keating had always hoped, he did receive two formal state commissions in his entire career, a mural for the Shamrock Pavilion at the World's Fair in 1939, destroyed in situ when the pavilion was bulldozed on site in 1942 and a mural for the International Labour Office in Geneva, uh, which he received the commission in 1957, and it was installed in 1962, and it is still in situ. And when the Arts Act brought about the formation of the Arts Council in 1951, Keating, by then president of the RHA, was at the forefront of rows with the then director, Sean O'Fallon, whose preference for modernist art left RHA academicians without official support, the facts of which have been well documented elsewhere. It is in his fearless engagement with the debates of the day and his allegorical works for public exhibition at home and abroad that the 21st century audience can track Keating's attitude to what he saw as the failure of the revolution, to the unchanging church, to successive post-treaty governments and the socio-political conditions, and to the ordinary citizens of Ireland in the post-independent years, the complexity and reality of which was all part of the tension between tradition and modernity that was crucial to the construction of a national post-colonial identity. And finally, just returning to the theme of today's conference, Keating's words, broadcast in 1932, say a lot about his view of artists in society, and yet powerfully reverberate, particularly in the context of the recent economic crash that affected Ireland so badly. And I quote, I have a picture in my mind of an Ireland self-supporting, self-confident and self-respecting. An Ireland with an, an economic equilibrium that could be trusted to stay put. I look forward to a sort of life dominated by artists and engineers of the two sorts. I think the artist is more valuable to the nation. If you want an antitoxin for humbug, you will get it from the artist. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Art and Reality, the role of visual culture in the post-independent state. The symposium took place in the UCD Humanities Institute on the 19th of October 2018 and was a joint initiative between the UCD School of Art, History and Cultural Policy and NIVAL, the National Irish Visual Arts Library. 
the symposium was organised by Roisin Kennedy and funded by UCD Decade of Centenaries. All ten papers at the symposium were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media and are now available online.